As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, today is the Sunday of joy. And so I want to say happy Advent to each one of you. I'm even going to um, break a liturgical rule and say Merry Christmas, you brood of snakes. (laughs) It seems kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, it's supposed to be the Sunday of joy, and that's the greeting we get. You brood of snakes? Well, they called them vipers, but we're translating that into our common understanding of the little serpent, the snake. It's contradictory. I mean, are we speaking of joy or are we speaking of judgment? How do we navigate these differences? Merry Christmas denotes a relationship of love, of fondness. And then we get the brood of vipers. This does not intimate a close relationship. I don't know if that's been your experience, but that's been mine. Um, Whenever Patty looks at me and says, you're acting like a snake, that's not a fond, loving comment that I would receive. I don't know about you. And so what we're dealing with today, I think, is an uncompromising word from the preacher, John. John's hearers are being warned. They are being warned about the wrath of God. And the reason that they are being warned about the wrath of God is because God is concerned that we experience the joy that God is promising to bring through his son, Jesus. The wrath of God does not contradict God's goodness. It may contradict our feelings, but it doesn't contradict God's goodness. The purpose of God's wrath is not to destroy. It is not to condemn. The purpose of God's wrath is to inspire repentance, to cause one to realize that God is not just our Savior, but our Lord, our King. And as we gather on this third Sunday of Advent to understand that the God that comes to us is the God of joy. When I was a child, every Christmas Eve, we had a family tradition. We would go to the 11 o'clock, well, first of all, around 7, 6, 7 o'clock at night, we'd have dinner. And um, my mother was a daughter of a Norwegian who loved um, oyster stew. So that's what I grew up on. Um, Now, in northwest Iowa, in December, it is really difficult to find oysters and especially good oysters. (laughs) And so what my mom purchased was what she could find. And uh, I guess to to make an understatement, the children did not enjoy this particular meal. (laughs) And so after the oyster stew, we'd get dressed in our Christmas best, and we'd go to the 11 o'clock worship service at church 
Then after church, my father would drive us around and look at all the Christmas lights around town. And then we'd get home like around 12.30 or 1 in the morning. And lo and behold, every single time we came home, from the time I was this size to an adult, every single time, Santa had come. And so the Norwegian tradition that I grew up with is we opened Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. So we were there opening Christmas presents till 3 or 4 in the morning because my mother made sure we always opened one at a time. So it was no mad rush to find what we got. And so one of the big surprises of Christmas Eve is that we always had an orange in our stocking. Now, has anyone else ever experienced an orange in their stocking? Okay, there's a handful of people, yes. So I don't know why, but, you know, we would always pull it out with all the other toys and stocking stuffers and put it alongside the toys, and, the, and then my mom would pick them up eventually and put them back in the, put them in the refrigerator. <laughs> Got to be politically correct here. Um, so what I discovered on the last birthday of my father, the two months before he passed away, he was terminally ill, and so he wanted to share some things with us. And one of the things that he shared with us is how he had experienced Christmas. He said, we each had a stocking. And he said, what I remember is that we all received an orange in our stocking. Now, our stockings were filled with oranges, but we were, you know, matchbox, matchbox cars, you know, cologne, whatever, you know, all kinds of stuff was in our stocking. My father grew up on the farm, post-depression, and all he had in his stocking was an orange, he and his siblings. And then there would be one gift for my father, and then there was a bag of peanuts and homemade candy. That was their Christmas gifts. And he said they loved Christmas because they got a Christmas present. <laughs> it was the one time of the year when they would receive a gift. No birthday gifts, nothing like that, just a Christmas. And all of a sudden things started to make more sense because I remember he would tell us when we were little kids about, oh, I remember getting my first baseball glove. It was signed by, my dad was a Chicago Cubs fan. Now, how you can grow up in Northwest Iowa and become a Chicago Cubs fan, I don't know quite how that happened. Other than when he was a little boy, his first baseball mitt was signed by one of the Chicago Cub players. Aha, that's how he became a Chicago Cubs fan. <laughs> that was his first identification with the team. And then what I then began to understand as I studied the scriptures was that the orange had a meaning as well. And the meaning of the orange was that Christmas is a gift. Jesus is a gift. Everything we receive for Christmas, peace, joy, hope, love, all of these things, they're gifts, gifts from God. 
Not only was it a special gift during the snowy, cold months of winter, but this gift of an orange also had a spiritual significance to it. Spiritual fruit is also a gift. You see, what the fruit reminds us of is that we didn't create it. We didn't make it. We didn't earn it. The fruit came because it was born on a tree. And so the orange was a symbol of God's gift and God's grace. So when John begins his sermon, we are reminded that we can't bring about a repentant heart on our own. Even our repentance is a gift. And that's what John says when he said this at the beginning of his sermon. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, I'm going to tell you that I did not like the translation from the Bible that we're reading from this morning. I didn't like that translation because it just kind of destroys the whole concept of the orange, of the fruit. Bear fruits, plural, worthy of repentance. Let's take a look at how they translated that in verse 8 of our reading this morning. Prove by the way you live. Does that sound like it's bearing fruit? Fruit being born? Prove by the way you live. No. What that, what that is saying is that it's all on you. It's your fault. It's your responsibility. And what John is saying is that God has begun at work in you. So bear fruits. Worthy of repentance. So your repentance doesn't just make you feel bad. <laughs> if that's what repentance is, then we've kind of failed. Repentance begins to transform us and to change us. And we begin to bear fruits that worthy of repentance. Fruits that reflect the penitent hearts that we are living with. So the reason for my disagreement here is that repentance is not simply a human endeavor. Nor is it an emotional feeling. Repentance is actually where our lives become changed, transformed. And that transformation happens because of what God is already doing in us. And so when John went out into the wilderness, what he was trying to tell the people is, hey, God is doing a great thing. God is doing an amazing thing. And those of you who get it, your lives are showing it, and that's repentance. That's change. 
Our repentance is our response to what God has already been doing in us. Hence, you cannot make fruit happen. You can't. And if you do, you're going to get tired of it and burned out and give up on it. Patty teaches the children a song about the fruits of the Spirit. And the kids love this song. I love the song. But it goes something like, if you want to be a, f- a fruit of the Spirit, then you can't be a fruit like an orange or a grape. Or if you want to be a banana, you want to be a banana? You can't be a banana if you're going to be a fruit of the Spirit. So, so the, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that the fruit is the reflection of how our lives are being changed by the word of God that has come to us. And so the best repentance is when we don't even realize it. How's that for repentance? Now, John must have been a phenomenal preacher, at least a very engaging preacher. I think when we read or hear what John was preaching uh, for ourselves, um, we might have thought of John as kind of the fire and brimstone preacher, right? I mean, it sounds pretty, pretty harsh. But his preaching of God's word is done in the context of where he's at in the wilderness, down near the Jordan River, an hour outside of Jerusalem, And in that particular context, he's connecting with people. He's connecting with all kinds of people. The first group is the crowds. And the crowds is uh, a word that is used to translate to explain that the crowds would have been people of the land. Now, um, if you go to Israel today, you'll see Bedouin communities. These are kind of indigenous groups of, of Arabs that live and uh, off the land. And, um, and, and so that would have been kind of an explanation of the people, the crowds, the people of the land. Um, so their ethnicity would be a little suspect. You know, you didn't have the great family trees that they had in the temple. And so the people of the land were always kind of like, suspicious of, uh, you know, the the religious leaders were suspicious of them because, you know, they weren't really qualified, certified. They weren't authenticated as really good bloodlines. And so the crowds are the first to respond. And they ask John, what should we do? What should we do? And John tells them, if you have two coats, give one to those who have none. And the same with food. If you've got extra food, give it to people who don't have any food. Pretty simple. That's bearing fruit of repentance. But it doesn't stop with the crowds. (laughs) Then the tax collectors ask him, teacher, what should we do? Well, the tax collectors were a different 
kind of group. <laughs> Let's say that the tax collectors were Jewish people who were not practicing their Jewish faith because you couldn't practice the faith and be a tax collector. The tax collectors, um, they were responsible for collecting the taxes of the transported goods. You know, the, the Romans took care of the land and the property taxes. The poll taxes, if you wanted to go vote, you had to pay a poll tax. And, and so the, the Romans took care of all of that. But then they, they offered people from the land of Judah, Jewish people, the right to bid to become a tax collector, to collect the other taxes. And the way you made your money on the other taxes, you added a surcharge. Well, sometimes the surcharge got turned into some bribes, sometimes even extortion. And so tax collectors had a bad reputation throughout Israel because they were not nice people that were kind with you when you went to pay your tax. These were people that found every single way that they could find to take more money from you. And so they asked John, what should we do? And John tells them, don't take any more than what you are required to take. Stop extorting. Stop living off of bribes. Stop pushing people around financially. Take what's rightly yours and leave it at that. These tax collectors were despised. I mean, they were often a disgrace to their family. They had been expelled from the synagogues. They had no friends other than other tax collectors. Do you remember when Jesus would go to dinner with a tax collector? It was never just one. <laughs> it was a group of them because that was their only friends. Who's going to befriend a tax collector? No one else but another tax collector. Then there's a third group that John tells us about, and that's the soldiers. The soldiers asked John, wait for it, what should we do? <laughs> and John tells them, stop being aggressive with the civilians. See, the soldiers were Jews too, and um, they were a part of, uh, we believe, a part of Herod Antipas's armies. Now, Herod Antipas is the son, one of the sons, of Herod the Great. And uh, when Herod the Great dies, you know, we talked about this last week, none of the sons were gifted enough to do the whole thing, so the Romans parceled it out to three of them. And Herod Antipas was probably the most prominent one. He had the, the whole northern part of Israel, the region of Galilee, and he had soldiers, he had armies, uh, he was uh, a great lover of great architecture. Um, you know, th these were smart, gifted people. They were also mean, vindictive, and violent. And so these soldiers worked 
for a man who was despised by many Jews, King Herod. And so they're asking what they should do. And what John is telling them is stop using threats, false accusations, false witnesses. Stop doing that kind of thing against people in order to to get your way with, with what you want. He said instead, don't extort money from civilians. Don't treat them aggressively. Be kind to them. Respect them and protect them. That's what he was telling them. Now, so far we have heard from the crowds, the people of the land. We've heard from the tax collectors. And we've heard from the Jewish soldiers. Did you notice who did not engage with John's sermon? The religious leaders? Any word from them? How about the respectable community members? Any word from them? You see, what we hear today in this story is that the ones who responded to John's sermon would have been considered the outcasts, the outsiders. Those who were rough and tough, but also those who were mean and vindictive. Also those who didn't have a home, an identity, other than anything that they could make up for themselves. I am a wicked tax collector. I'm going to come and take your money. And so these are the people that hear the message that John proclaims, and their lives begin to be transformed and changed. So the question for us then, I think today, was when you hear the sermon from John, what do you hear? What do you hear? Let me share what I hear. I hear that we should spend more time being with God and listening to God than doing things. Now I want to just say first off that I'm preaching to myself here. <laughs> and if this fits for you, uh, join on in. But I, this, is, this part of the sermon is for me. I mean, have you turned the season of Advent into a busy active time of doing things like I have? Have you turned Advent into a, a time where I don't have time to spend with God because I'm so busy spending time with people and doing the projects that I'm supposed to do on Advent for the church and for the, my, my family and for, for the school and for all these other things. I mean, it's good. It's all good. Please know that it's great. But am I spending time with God? Not trying to impress God. What would it look like for us to slow down? To actually use Advent as a time of reflection and listening. And when I think that question, I have to remind myself, Steve, did you make the orange? No, I got it as a gift in my Christmas stocking. 
God creates. God transforms. God changes our hearts. God moves us into repentance. And God moves us from repentance into fruits. Amazing fruits. I mean, some of you are just amazing fruits. Because God is at the center of who you are. I also hear another thing. I hear that John came to bring good news. Today's the candle of joy of all times, right? Didn't we get to sing Rejoice, Rejoice, Believers? It's one of my favorite Advent Christmas hymns. The gospel this morning sounds a bit foreboding, but brothers and sisters, you notice I didn't call you people? You're my brothers. You're my sisters. Fellow believers, did you hear what I heard this morning? Did you hear with those repentant hearts that this morning's gospel is good news? Because the joy that we have this morning is just a glimpse of the joy that is coming. The forgiveness, the salvation, the restoration, the renewal, these are glimpses of what God has promised to do in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has begun. I know we're kind of waiting for the little baby to be born, but it's already happened, right? A couple thousand years ago. So we're also not just waiting for an anniversary of that, of that birth, but we're also waiting for Jesus to come again. And if you were here on the first week of Advent, what I told you then was that when Jesus comes again, is a wonderful time for those of us who are believers. It is a wonderful time for the baptized believers of God. And so we should be confident. Remember that? Be confident because God is doing an amazing thing. And we get to be a part of it. Live with the joy that God has given us. This truly is good news. The Messiah is not only coming, he has already come for you. And he is coming again for you. Today is a day to celebrate and to rejoice. For the coming of the Messiah is near. And this is good news to those of us who are Christians. That is why we will sing again and again, rejoice, rejoice. That is why this is the day the Lord has made and why we should rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, my friends. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that we received oranges in our stockings. Good news, you brood of vipers. Amen.